Our first speaker is Kirk Magleby. Kirk Alder Magleby is the executive director of Book of Mormon Central, and we really appreciate all that Book of Mormon Central uh, does with FAIR. Kirk was born in Salzburg, Austria, and raised in Utah and Arizona. He served a mission for the church in Peru. Kirk has a degree in economics from BYU and has spent his life in entrepreneurial as well as religious and humanitarian pursuits. He and his wife, Shannon, have four children and ten grandchildren. So with that, we're going to turn the time over to Kirk Magleby. I hope he's here. There he is. Good. (laughs) Thank you, Scott. I have one of the most pleasurable opportunities you can imagine today. I get to talk about Hugh Nibley. For 30 uh, years, Reader's Digest, okay, there we go. For 30 years, Reader's Digest's most popular series was entitled My Most Unforgettable Character. These were intimate biographical sketches written by friends of sports heroes, politicians, industry titans, and ordinary folk, explaining why their notable lives achieved enduring impact. Today, I will share with you why Hugh Nibley is one of my most unforgettable characters. His grandfather, Charles Wilson Nibley, was born in Scotland, where his family joined the church. Charles W. Nibley became one of the first Latter-day Saint multi-millionaires with interest in lumber, banking, railroads, insurance, and agriculture. Charles and his three wives had 24 children. He was presiding bishop of the church from 1907 to 1925, and then second counselor to President Heber J. Grant from 1925 to his death in uh, 1931. Charles W. Nibley is one of the few people to have not just one, but two towns named after him, one in Utah and one in Oregon. Hugh's paternal grandmother, Rebecca Nibar Nibley, was the daughter of Alexander Nibar, the first person of Jewish descent to join the church. Born in Germany, Nibar was a physician and a dentist fluent in seven languages, which is one of the reasons why Hugh became Hugh. Hugh's given name came from his um, his maternal grandfather, Hugh Russell Sloan, who was born in Ireland and then emigrated to Utah, eventually settling in Alberta. Hugh Nibley was born to privilege. He grew up in Oregon and California, attended by servants, In his youth, he had a whole suite of rooms at his disposal. Los Angeles in the 1920s was an idyllic place. Real estate and the entertainment industry were booming. Orange groves were still ubiquitous. World-class educational institutions such as USC and UCLA were coming on stream and beginning to make a mark for themselves. Hugh never held a job outside of school until the height of the Depression when his parents' financial situation became so desperate that they borrowed, quote-unquote, their son's cash award from the University of California Fellowship and never paid it back. Hence, Hugh Nibley's distrust of wealth. While he was uh, ages 17 to 19, Hugh served a mission in Germany where he crossed paths with a rising politician, Adolf Hitler. At the end of the war, Hugh visited uh, uh, Hitler's eagle's nest in Bavaria and helped himself to many sheets of the dictator's personal gold-leafed stationery. He took those home, gave them to his dad. His dad passed them out to all his fancy friends in, in Los Angeles. Hence, Nibley's deep-seated mistrust of fame and power. So we have in Hugh Nibley one of those rare people who was not trying to become rich or famous or powerful. What made Hugh Nibley tick? The turning point for him came in 1936. He was 26 years old. He had already served two missions. He had graduated with highest honors from UCLA. He was well along in his graduate program at UC Berkeley. His parents appropriated his fellowship money. That forced him to move from a, a, a posh uh, apartment, a, a, a very lovely place, the International House in Berkeley, 
into a dump. He was beginning uh, to doubt the existence of a loving, caring God. He had never worked for pay a day in his life. He had no idea where his next meal was coming from. He was frantically looking for work. It was 1936, the height of the Great Depression. And suddenly, in this moment of despair, a job dropped into his lap. Translating Jesuit documents from Latin, and he was on the university payroll. And at that moment, Hugh's faith began to grow. A few months later, the Lord gave him an incredible gift. 1936, during an appendectomy at the Seventh-day Adventist Hospital in Loma Linda, California, Hugh had a near-death experience. He went through a tunnel. He spent time in the spirit world. And from then on, Hugh had sure knowledge of the afterlife. This is Hugh Nibley. Strong faith becoming sure knowledge in aspect after aspect after aspect of the gospel and the restoration. Hugh Nibley was a polymath. One of those rare humans that God occasionally sends to earth with particularly acute intellectual faculties and near-perfect recall. Nibley played the piano. He drew art. And he wrote poetry. He quoted long passages from Homer and Shakespeare from memory. His vast literary output includes treatises on antiquity, the classical era, early Christianity, the Middle Ages, the Renaissance, modern science, environmentalism, and Mormon history, to name a few. He was adept at more than a dozen languages and conversant with a dozen more. He explicated uh, Plato, Josephus, Augustine of Hippo, Thomas Aquinas, Joseph Justice Scaliger, for whom he had particular respect, and Karl Popper, with equal ease. Famous polymaths include the Greek philosopher Aristotle, Avicenna of the Islamic Golden Age, the Song Dynasty inventor uh, uh, Xian Kuo, and of course, Leonardo da Vinci of the Italian Renaissance. Intellectually, Hugh Nibley was at home in these rarefied circles of genius. He gave Latter-day Saints like me a brilliant hometown hero that we could look up to with pride. 1971 was the beginning of my freshman year at BYU. Dallin H. Oaks was the brand new president of the university. The Provo Temple was just dedicated. And Nibley was a colossus astride the campus. Students gutsy and lucky enough to enroll in his classes bragged about it. Competition to get into a Nibley class was fierce. His frequent fireside presentations were delivered to standing room only audiences. We talked about Nibley sightings, almost as if we were tourists in glamorous parts of Southern California. His Sunday school lessons were so popular that the church finally issued a plea for all of us students to please attend our student wards rather than all of us flocking to the Nibley family ward. Uh, in 1971, Hugh Nibley taught and then baptized the Croatian basketball star, Kresimir Chosic. A phenomenon at BYU. He was the first uh, man in history to play all five positions. Uh, he was uh, at once a point guard, a shooting guard, a small forward, a power forward, and a center. Now, Hugh and Phyllis Nibley, by 1971, had all eight of their living children. Uh, Zina, their youngest, was seven, and Paul, their oldest, was 24. They lived in a very unpretentious house at 285E 700 North in Provo, which, as you will expect today, are high-rise apartments. The yard was frequently overgrown and unkempt. One evening, several of us assembled at the Nibley home and began volunteer landscape maintenance. Back home, uh, when we went out and did service projects as young men, young women, we were sometimes rewarded with brownies. But in this particular case, Hugh comes roaring out of his house, shaking his finger at us and says, 
I don't want a Ernest L. Wilkinson lawn. I was walking in front of the Nibley home one evening. Oh, whoops. I, I was walking in front of this home one evening because my apartment was just a few, uh, a few doors down. And Truman Manson drove by. And he asked me where he lived. I pointed to the house. Truman was skeptical. I insisted that, no, no, this older, humble dwelling was really where Hugh Nibley lived. Madison was clearly expecting something a little bit more akin to the fancy homes in the tree streets where he and many of the other BYU professors lived. The summer after my freshman year, Paul Cox, Garrett Gong, Bruce McDaniel, and I went for a three-week three -week backpacking trek through the Olympic National Park, including the 30-mile stretch of Wilderness Beach between the Ho River and the Ozette Indian Reservation. Elder Gong spoke of this trip in his BYU devotional on the 16th of October in 2018. We took a box of missionary copies of the Book of Mormon, wrote our names in the books and gave them to people along our route. And once, in the solitary splendor of this incredible temperate rainforest, uh, we simply talked all day long. We never even got out of our sleeping bags. And what did we talk about? Well, the church, the gospel, the Book of Mormon, Joseph Smith, science, politics, economics, and Hugh Nibley. We all had testimonies of the truthfulness of the Book of Mormon, born of the Spirit. But Nibley's writings in Lehi in the Desert and the World of the Jaredites, an approach to the Book of Mormon, came out in 1957, and since Cumorah in 67, we'd all read these. And they satisfied us intellectually in ways that the Nephite text by itself never could. Within a few months, we were all on full-time missions. Bruce went to Missouri, I served in Peru, Paul went to Samoa, and Garrett to Taiwan. We were examples of the truism that Elder Jeffrey R. Holland expressed on uh, August 16th of 2017 when uh, Book of Central and BYU Studies put on the Chiasmus Jubilee, the 50th anniversary of the discovery of Chiasmus. And at that event, Elder Holland, speaking of the greatness of the evidence, said, Rock-ribbed faith and uncompromised conviction comes with its most complete power when it engages our head as well as our heart. Bruce went on to become a medical doctor, then a rare book dealer. I helped with farms in the early days, and I'm currently the executive director of Book of Mormon Central. Paula won the Bowdoin Prize twice at Harvard a distinction that he shares with Ralph Waldo Emerson. Then the Goldman Environmental Prize. His remarkable career was featured in an 11-page article in the September 2016 issue of Southwest Airlines in-flight magazine. Garrett was a Rhodes Scholar, a diplomat, and a foreign policy analyst before becoming a university administrator and then a general authority. How does Hugh Nibley continue to influence Elder Gong's thinking today? Well, about... A week, about a month ago, the fourth season of the church's Book of Mormon videos began filming. And uh, the day before filming began, Elder Gong was the keynote speaker at a fireside for the crew and cast of uh, the Book of Mormon video series. I was there, and as filming was uh, uh, about to begin, here's what he said. Gong in Chinese means river. And so he said, I've always paid particular attention to rivers. First Nephi 2.6 speaks of a river of water. Elder Gong then quoted Nibley from Lehi in the desert, explaining that Arabs talk about rivers of sand as well as rivers of water. And after sharing that Joseph Smith would not have known this uh, little detail, Elder Gong asked the cast and the crew to use our best educated assumptions and apply the best current scholarship to understand the ancient daily details of the Book of Mormon text. I read Nibley, my friends read Nibley, my dad read Nibley, practically everyone I knew read Nibley. His was a powerful voice in my generation. We thought that if somebody that smart, someone who could read the Torah, the Textus Receptus, the Bhagavad Gita, and the Quran in the original, 
believed the Book of Mormon was historical, then it merited close reading. As Jack Welch is fond of saying, it is a book you can respect. Hugh Nibley reveled in nature. As a young man, he spent six weeks alone in the Oregon woods around Crater Lake, where he delighted in encounters with bears and wolves. As a father, he took his children on jaunts to exceptional places like Canyonlands and Zion's National Park. I was on my mission serving in Arequipa, Peru, when Hugh's article, Man's Dominion, appeared in the October 1972 New Era. My friend, Brian Kelly, was the editor of the New Era, and he liked to challenge his young readers by publishing cerebral material. I'm reminded of the discussion about Nibley's 1957 Melchizedek Priesthood Manual, an approach to the Book of Mormon. Several of the brethren thought its academic tone was beyond the reach of most Latter-day Saints. And President David O. McKay uh, settled the discussion with one word, let them reach. That was uh, Brian uh, uh, Kelly's approach to uh, those of us in the mission field in 1972. Before my mission, I found myself, uh, I fancied myself something of a hunter and had begun to amass a gun collection. In my youth, I was deer hunting with my father. He carried the 30 out six and I carried the 22. He pointed to a squirrel up in the tree canopy and asked if I could hit it. So I took aim and dropped it to the ground. As I looked around at that dead squirrel, I wondered if I really had the right to deny this creature its life and its liberties. In my missionary apartment out of Kipa, Nibley taught me about the two ways, the priesthood stewardship exercised by Adam, Abel, and Noah, as opposed to the predatory exploitation of nature by Cain, Nibrod, and Esau. Reading Nibley caused me to decide who I was and what I wanted to be when I grew up. One of the first things I did after returning home from Peru was give away my guns. Years later, my two sons were approaching mission age. And it dawned on me that I may have been derelict in their education. They were surrounded by gun culture, but they'd never pulled a trigger. So I bought a 22, took him out of the rifle range, and let him plink uh, uh, tin cans for an hour. When uh, Spencer W. Kimball's message, Don't Kill the Little Birdies, came out in April, an October General Conference in 1978, I was sympathetic. But by then, he was preaching to the choir. It was Hugh Nibley in 1972 with Man's Dominion, uh, that article, that had changed my behavior. Over the years in my technology business, I've had occasion to bring many out-of-town business associates to Utah County. And almost without exception, the one place they want to visit is Sundance to get a glimpse of Robert Redford's home turf. I've entertained dozens of people at the tree room, and a couple of times my lucky guests have even caught a glimpse of the famous actor himself. I doubt any other local is as well known around the world as Robert Redford. In the fall of 1988, Ted Wilson was the Democratic nominee for Utah governor. He'd been mayor of Salt Lake for 10 years. Norm Bangader ultimately prevailed by a narrow margin in a race where Merrill Cook stirred things up as a self-financed independent. Wilson was ahead in the polls during most of the election cycle. And the D Democrats sensed a legitimate opportunity for a statewide office with, with uh, Cook siphoning off part of the, the Republican bloc. In that environment, the Utah County Democrats generated publicity by knocking on doors with an all-star threesome. Ted Wilson, Hugh Nibley, and Robert Redford. Now, as the committee approached Nibley with the idea, he was, he was enthusiastic. He knew Ted Wilson, and he respected him. But who was this Robert Redford guy? Political issues such as pacifism and social safety nets were important to Hugh. But popular culture was very seldom on his radar. Nibley first visited the Hopi Mesa soon after joining the BYU faculty in 1946. Ten years and several visits later, he was finally permitted to see one of the sacred engraved Hopi stones. Virgil Bushman lived in, Nephi, in Nibley's ward and facilitated his trip to the reservation. Virgil uh, uh, Bushman worked with Jay Garlick, a successful real estate agent who owned a brand new station wagon, and my former bishop. Nibley, Bushman, and Garlick went down to Arizona in 1957. And this account comes from Jay's very excellent 2001 autobiography entitled A Marvelous Work. This is what Jay had to say. 
The chief of the Hopis was very feeble, so his daughter was in charge. Mr. Bushman went in to see the daughter and reminded her that their tradition states, someone will come to translate the record. And he said, I brought the man who can do it. But she said, no, no, just come back. Brother Nibley then went in with the very same response. She wasn't mean about it. She just said, no. They tried to tell her that we had driven 700 miles to be there. But she just repeated, no, no, just come back again. So then I said, well, let me try. I was the last to go in. I had a half dollar in my pocket. As I walked in, I set it down on the table. And I said, if I give you this, can we see the record? She said, sure. She brought out an oblong package, about 11 by 17 inches in size, wrapped in a dish towel, and placed it on the table in front of Brother Nibley. It was about a one-inch long, uh, 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 thick stone tablet with engravings on it. I was standing behind him looking down at it. I was surprised at how very precise this writing was. The letters looked almost as if they were printed. They were just so nice and neat in a row. I noted that there were arrows going uh, all the, uh, the way up one side of the record and coming down on the other side of the page. I remember that Brother Nibley said that meant prayers were going up and prayers were being answered. But we weren't able to look at, at it for very long. It was kind of like those nickel machines. Our time was up, so the daughter came and scooped it up and uh, took back the record. We joked, if we gave her another 50 cents, could we have had more time? Nibley visited the Hopi several more times, including a 1968 trip with Egyptologist Klaus Baer. He was privileged to see the sacred engraved Hopi stones one more time, as well as the prophecy rock uh, petroglyphs. His last trip to the Hopi, Hopi Mesas was in 1996. The last time I saw him was 2003, when Jack Welch and I visited Hugh and Phyllis in their home. I wanted to know if there was anything he'd seen among the Hopi that he considered authentic phonetic writing. And he said, no, what, he, what he'd seen were pictograms, albeit very neatly executed. Unreliable information appears from time to time, claiming that Hugh Nibley believed the Book of Mormon took place in what is today the United States of America. This is a lie spread by an irrational faction within the church who cherry-picked data in support of a lucrative private agenda. In fact, Nibley, from the early 1980s to his death, was a strong supporter of farms and the work of John L. Sorensen. While Hugh Nibley was earning his Ph.D. at Berkeley from 34 to 38, he was accompanied by Milton R. Hunter, who earned his Ph.D. in 35, M. Wells Jakeman, who earned his Ph.D. in 38. Whoops, what, are, what do we got here? Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, we've got uh, Milton R. Hunter, M. Wells Jakeman, and uh, Thomas Stewart Ferguson, who earned his B.S. in 37 and his L.L.B. in 42. Jakeman, the one in the middle, formed the Eatson Society at Berkeley, which briefly included Nibley, Hunter, and Ferguson. And they worked through the textual support for and the implications of Jakeman's limited Tawantepec theory of Book of Mormon geography. In the fall of 1954, Milton R. Hunter took Sidney Sperry, Hugh Nibley, John L. Sorensen, and Welby Ricks to visit the Las Lunas Decalogue Stone 25 miles south of Albuquerque. Sperry and Nibley pronounced it a fake based on the Hebrew inscriptions. Sorensen pronounced it a fake based on the ambient archaeology. And as the group was leaving, Ricks overheard the two locals who'd arranged the meeting talking. One asked the other, do you think they bought it? <laughs> Parenthetically, that's how hard, uh, uh, frauds and hoaxes work. One of these days I uh, may give a presentation on frauds and hoaxes in, in the world of the Book of Mormon because there have been hundreds. <laughs> and there's always a motive. <clears throat> Nibley, already respectful of Sperry's scholarship, was beginning to develop confidence in, in uh, Sorensen's judgment. In 1957, in an approach to the Book of Mormon, Nibley wrote, it's our conviction that proof of the Book of Mormon does lie in Central America. The Millennial Star from November of 62 reports a, a challenge that Nibley often shared, daring his audience to produce a book as marvelous as the Book of Mormon, with its detailed descriptions of life in ancient Central America. And in 1967, and since Camorra, Nibley again talked about the Book of Mormon setting in Central America. In 1968, Bookcraft published Sperry's Book of Mormon Compendium. Pages 447 to 451 of that work is a monograph entitled, Were There Two Camorras? And in it, Sperry lays out the reasons that he finally concluded over Joseph Fielding Smith's strong objections that the Nephite text requires a Rhema Camorra battlefield thousands of miles distant from the Camorra repository in upstate New York. Sperry consulted with Nibley as, we, as he worked out this issue. 
While I was Paul Chessman's research assistant in the 1970s, we had a discussion one day with Hugh, who expressed satisfaction that Sperry, at the end of his career, had finally come around to his, Nibley's, and Sorensen's point of view on this matter. In 1980, after Jack and Jeannie Welch had moved from Los Angeles to Provo, John Sorensen and I supported Jack as the early officers of farms. We consulted with Nibley on occasion. Nibley thought highly of Jack's work and was thrilled that Sorensen was on our team. Nibley considered Sorensen the ablest Book of Mormon New World scholar in the church. Gordon Thomason soon joined the farm's inner circle. Thomas had been, had, had been Nibley's research assistant. And for years, we proudly published an endorsement from Hugh Nibley on farms literature. You can't read it very well on here, but uh, over on the right, uh, this is what it says. And this, uh, we, we published this for 10 years. Um, I would advise anyone embarking on a serious study of the Book of Mormon to consult farms. In 1985, Sorensen's An Ancient American Study for the Book of Mormon came off the press. I immediately hand-delivered a copy to Nibley. His eyes lit up as I gave the book to him. At last, he said, something I can sink my teeth into. He really liked the maps that John and I had worked uh, on at the University of Utah Cartography Labs. After Sorensen published Images of Ancient America, Visualizing Book of Mormon Life in 1998, Nibley wrote an endorsement. This is the best book I've ever seen on the Book of Mormon. John Sorensen's book, Images of America, must remain the indispensable handbook for students of the Book of Mormon, the only book of its kind, enlightening and convincing. Who else will ever bring such diligence, knowledge, and honesty to the task? My last visit with Hugh was in 2003. We talked about his visits to Mexico and the Hopi villages. Nibley reiterated his belief that the Book of Mormon took place in Mesoamerica with echoes and remnants filtering up into the native cultures of the continental United States. From time to time, Hugh compared the righteous Nephites to the mound builders and said their apostate Nephite and Lamanite neighbors would have been the ones to have built the lavish ruins that tourists flock to today in Mexico and Central America. But on the fundamental question of Book of Mormon setting, Nibley, throughout his life, believed the Nephite text happened primarily in Mesoamerica. So Nibley was a polymath. <clears throat> he was a naturalist. He was an anthropologist. He was a Mesoamericanist. But that's not who Nibley was. The, to get to the essence of Hugh Nibley, you've got to understand this man was a prophet. Before Hugh was born, his mother, Agnes Sloan Nibley, received a blessing from John R. Winder, who at that time was in the Salt Lake Temple Presidency and a counselor to President Joseph S. Smith. And in that blessing, Sister Nibley came to know that the child she was carrying would play an important role in the kingdom. John R. Winder died on March 27, 1910, the very same day that Hugh Winder Nibley was born. And now you know why his middle name was Winder. It was December 1936 when Hugh Nibley was ushered temporarily into the spirit world. He was fond of quoting Joseph Smith. Could you gaze into heaven five minutes? You would know more than uh, you would by reading all that was ever written on the subject. When a person spends time beyond the veil and then returns back to share what they've learned with the rest of us, that person is a de facto prophet. While he was teaching at Claremont, Nibley saw the sinking of the HMS Hood, the most powerful battleship of the British fleet, in a vivid 5 a.m. dream. The German Bismarck sank the Hood in only three minutes on May 24th of 41, and only three of her 1,814 crew survived. It's the single biggest loss of life in the history of the Royal Navy. A few months later, again in a, in a vivid 5 a.m. dream, Nephi, uh, I'm sorry, Nibley saw the sinking of the USS Arizona at Pearl Harbor. While on the Claremont faculty, Nibley became close to college president Rush Lum Story. And on the morning of March 29, 1942, Nibley looked up and President Story was at the foot of his bed. When he got to school later that day, uh, he learned that the President Story had died during the night. While at Claremont, Nibley saw the sinking of the USS Cory off Utah Beach in a dream. And then on June the 6th of 44, Hugh was alongside the Cory and saw it go down just as he had witnessed in his dream. The Cory was the U.S. Navy's only major loss on D-Day. 
as he participated in the liberation of Europe as a member of the 101st Airborne, Hugh relied on his patriarchal blessing, which he carried with him. In his words, it had been carried out so beautifully up to then, so I said, well, just keep going. We have a labor to perform. In May of 1944, Hugh wrote in his journal that the war in Europe would end on May the 7th of 1945. The Germans unconditionally surrendered in Reims, France on May the 7th of 1945. And the next day, the 8th, was VE Day. In 1929, he was on his mission in Karlsruhe, Germany. He preached at a butcher shop and warned the people that God would send fire from heaven. A woman came out of the shop brandishing a meat cleaver and she yelled, Don't you tell us we're going to be destroyed by fire from heaven. In late June of 1945, Nibley was driving a jeep through Karlsruhe. He came to the burned out framework of the door to that very butcher shop. The entire city of Karlsruhe lay in ruins, a victim of the British firebombing. In August of 1952, Hugh and Phyllis' oldest daughter, Christina, suffered from pneumonia. Her father gave her a priesthood blessing and promised a miraculous cure. In a letter to his friend, Paul Springer, Nibley said, within a few hours, the little nipper was healthier than she's ever been. The alleviation was instantaneous. And then he added, I have never known this power to fail. Hugh Nibley, as his biographer, his son-in-law, Boyd Peterson, expresses so beautifully, expected miracles. Hugh Nibley had the kind of faith that literally does move mountains. In 1967, he was working in his office in the old Joseph Smith building. He suddenly dropped his book and ran down the hill from campus. He found his and Phyllis's youngest daughter, three-year-old Zina, about to tumble into an irrigation ditch. Nibley was from, permitted to, to uh, visit the spirit world one more time, this, one, this time near the end of his life, and it was a great comfort to him as he reported to Brett Hall, who directed the uh, farms in that era. Farms was heavily involved in uh, Nibley's affairs toward the end of his, of his life, as many people, particularly Michael Rhodes, worked to get one eternal round finally, finally published five years after his death. And as a prophet, what did Hugh Nibley teach? Well, what do any prophets teach in any dispensation? They call us to repentance, and for that reason, we hate them. We're on this earth to learn two things. This is, uh, is Nibley's mantra. Repent and forgive. The angels envy us our ability to repent. And if I master these two things, I am following in the footsteps of the great Hugh Nibley. And that is why he is one of my most unforgettable characters. Truman Madsen's original title for his Religious Studies Center um, Hugh Nibley Compendium was The Hugh Nibley, or The Nibley Legacy. When the book was actually published, it was Nibley on the Timely and the Timeless, because Hugh objected to the word legacy. It's now been 15 years since Hugh departed this life. So perhaps he'll not mind if we take a look at some of the elements of his legacy. In 1981, soon after Jack Welch brought farms to Provo, we had a planning meeting in the Smoot Administration Building on Beeway Campus. About 20 people were present, and we laid out an ambitious agenda for the next 10 years. We wanted to get the scholars in the church working on scriptural projects to communicate with each other. Farms ended up facilitating that, this. We wanted to get scholars, not of our faith, working on our scriptural canon. And the Nibley Fellowship Program made that happen. The collected works of Hugh Nibley got the green light on that day. And the Encyclopedia of Mormonism was contemplated. A massively hyperlinked set of scriptures was envisioned. Although the technology to do that in 1981 did not exist. By the end of the decade of the 1980s, every goal that we established in that meeting in 1981 was well along completion, except for the hyperlinked scriptures, which was technology-dependent. I'll get to that in a minute. 
The first four collected works volumes in what would eventually become a 19-volume set appeared in 1986-1987. Volumes 18 and 19 appeared 24 years later in uh, uh, 2010, five years after Nibley's birth. This was a 24-year project. The collected works was a massive undertaking. It was the largest publishing project in the history of the church up to that point in time. And it set the example for even more ambitious projects to come, such as the Joseph Smith Papers today. Why did we think the collected works were worth this much time and effort? Because Nibley had helped most of us get through college and get through graduate school with our testimonies intact. And we wanted his voice to remain relevant for the rising generation. And I'm proud to say this 19-volume set remains in print today. The two Feshrift volumes, by studying by, also by Faith, honors, uh, Essays in Honor of Hugh Nibley, edited by John Lundquist and Stephen Ricks, were printed to look like the Collected Work series. So overachieving Nibliophiles, uh, such as Lou Midgley, such as Shirley Rick, such as Gary Gillum, and a host of other luminaries, actually have 21 volumes on their shelf as opposed to just the standard 19. The Encyclopedia of Mormonism appeared in 1992. In the 1981 planning meeting, we thought it should be like the Catholic Encyclopedia, like the Encyclopedia Judaica. And uh, so, of course, we fully expected it to be published by Macmillan, which turned out to be the case. And what of that massively hyperlinked scripture idea that in 1981 was just a glint in the eye of Gordon Thomas and Bob Smith and myself. Well, Scripture Plus finally appeared in September of 2019. It's available free of charge on both Android and iOS, and it runs in both English and Spanish. We have more than 100,000 active users. They're all over the world and it has revolutionized scripture study. Scripture Plus allows you to go from one verse to some enrichment material, including commentary, quotations, images, videos, 3D tours, etc. Then back to the next verse with just a few taps. This virtuous cycle of verse, enrichment material, another verse, more enrichment material, has proven to be profoundly enlightening to most students. Version 2 of Scripture Plus is now in development, and it will allow hyperlinking enrichment material at the word or the phrase level, in addition to the verse level. And this will facilitate dictionaries and concordances in addition to personal study notes and highlighting. In addition to the 19 collected works by Nibley, there are three very good books about Nibley. Of course, uh, we've almost all read Hugh Nibley, Consecrated Life, uh, by uh, Zena's husband, Boyd J. Peterson, published in 2002. This is the uh, authorized biography, and it's excellent. And then, of course, many of us have read Sergeant Nibley, Ph.D., The Memories of an Unlikely Screaming Eagle, the uh, war memoir written by Hugh's uh, youngest son, Alex, which was published in 2006. And now in 2021, we have the wonderful new Hugh Nibley Observed, edited by Jeff Bradshaw, Shirley Ricks, and Stephen Whitlock with a foreword by Jack Welch. Copies are available today, I understand, out in the Fair Bookstore. <clears throat> the title, Hugh Nibley Observed, is a play on the terrific documentary film entitled Faith of an Observer, Conversations with Hugh Nibley, co-produced by BYU and Farms in 1985. And when that film came out, many of us thought it was the best uh, uh, cinematic production we'd ever seen come out of BYU. Alex Nibley, Brian Kaepner, Peter Johnson, Sterling Van Wagner were some of the key members of that production team. The best copy of Faith of an Observer currently online is on the Doctrine and Covenant Central YouTube channel. Hugh Nibley Observed is published by the Interpreter Foundation in collaboration with Bookworm Central and FAIR. And you'll notice that it bears the farm's logo. Jack Welch owns the farm's logo. We use it throughout the, the uh, Book of Mormon Central organization, and Jack has agreed to permit its use on certain high-value book titles going forward. Speaking of the farm's logo, you'll notice 
the Egyptian and Greek blocks from the farm's logo on the portrait of Hugh Nibley by Rebecca Everett that hangs in the Hugh Nibley Ancient Studies Reading Room in the Harold Bealey Library today. It's just right down, sort of uh, off to, to the, the left of uh, Hugh's glasses. Farms, which was founded in 1979, was acquired by BYU in 2002 and then disincorporated in 2006. The Maxwell Institute for Religious Scholarship is its lineal descendant. FAIR, founded in 1997. Interpreter, founded in 2012. And Book Mormon Central, founded in 2015, are all perpetuating the farm's vision as its spiritual descendants. The farm's rock that stood on or near BYU campus for decades is now in the back parking lot of the Book of Mormon Central office in Springville. Most of the material farms published over the years is now available online free of charge in the Book of Mormon Central archive. And Jeff Bradshaw's presentation here in this conference will uh, uh, share some more details about a a tremendous new asset, uh, a new new comprehensive bibliography of uh, Hugh material. As part of the Hugh Nibley Observe Project, we posted 23 videos on the Doctor and Covenant Central YouTube channel featuring various contributors sharing insights and personal stories about Nibley. For instance, the middle daughter, Rebecca, shares tender stories about reading with her father and going to the movies with her dad. Some of my favorite parts of the Hugh Nibley Observe book are the talks given at his funeral. Those of us who were in the Provo Tabernacle that day will always cherish the memory of that joyous event. Even in death, Hugh Nibley was unforgettable. So where do we go from here? What are we doing with the legacy that Hugh Nibley left us? The Institutional Church's Come, Follow Me program of systematic gospel study coordinated across auxiliaries and constituencies is a tremendous innovation. It has been gratifying to see a a wellspring of grassroots support for this initiative and a plethora of content producers actively helping Latter-day Saints engage with this weekly material. I personally am currently serving a church service mission with the priesthood and family department, helping to build an ecosystem around Come Follow Me and the church's gospel study tools, such as the Gospel Library app and the exciting new Gospel for Kids app. BYU Studies, the Religious Studies Center, and the Maxwell Institute continue to publish solid material. FAIR is becoming more focused, modern, and effective. Interpreter is growing, strengthening, and diversifying. The John A. Widsell Foundation is coming on strong in Southern California. I'm blessed to be Bookmore Central's executive director. We have 40 employees in five countries. We currently engage 1 million unique people every week in three languages. In addition to Book of Mormon Central and Doctrine and Covenant Central, we have Pearl of Great Price Central, Evidence Central, and Seminary Central. Book of Mormon Voices is coming. You'll be introduced to Evidence Central and Book of Mormon Voices in the next two sessions this morning. And Messages of Christ is our offering to those not of our faith. Some of the videos on this particular channel have more than 3 million views. And there's some new kids on the block. The B.H. Roberts Foundation will will begin making significant waves very soon. Scripture Plus or Book of Mormon Central is a terrific way to feast on the words of Christ. Serious students of the scriptures love it. But what about the millions of Latter-day Saints who simply do not make scripture study part of their daily routine? If a person does not voluntarily come to the scriptures, is it possible we could send the scriptures to them? Well, the answer is yes. With today's push technology on mobile devices, we can literally send the scriptures to anyone who's willing Enter the Come, Follow Me Foundation, affiliated with Book Mormon Central. The new Come, Follow Me app, currently going viral around the church, is a nearly foolproof way to spend five quality minutes with the scriptures in a daily devotional that quickly becomes habitual. Uh, This has been uh, 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 written, uh, devised, designed 
by psychologists, by specialists in uh, on, uh, online uh, user experience, and this is quite an app. On Friday, March 9th of 2018, I led a team for Book Moment Central to Google headquarters in Mountain View. Elders Anderson and Bednar had been there just a couple of weeks before. As he realized that Google has eight different products, each with over a billion users worldwide. Elder Bednar said, we in the church need to raise our sights and increase our expectations. In our case, we asked the assembled Latter-day Saint Googlers a simple question. If you wanted to get the Book of Mormon in front of hundreds of millions of people around the world who would read it and cherish it, what would you do? And the consensus came back, build an app. With the popular Scripture Plus app and the even more popular Come Follow Me app, we're now beginning to realize what the Googlers meant. And I'll share one more heartwarming story. The church's Book of Mormon videos are officially translated into 15 languages, but that leaves out many people. If you're not literate, for instance, these videos are a great way to absorb the spirit of the Book of Mormon, even if you can't read the words. As we speak, hundreds of copies of the Book of Mormon videos dubbed into Celtal Mayan are circulated among the saints and their friends in the Los Altos Highlands of Chiapas, Mexico. The Celtal Mayan project has been so successful as a joint venture between Escalera Foundation and Book of Mormon Central that Sotzil Mayan is now underway and Kekchi, Mom, Kikche, Aymara, and numerous other Native American languages are on deck. I hope Hugh appreciates where all of this is going. Thank you so much for that uh, wonderful uh, description of Hugh Nibley's life and experiences. I have a question that I've always had, and I don't think you know the answer to it, but I'm going to ask it anyway. How many languages did Hugh Nibley speak anyway? Well, he uh, publicly acknowledged 16. 16. Uh, the, the question becomes, what was a language? I mean, how much command did you have to have a language in order to include it? And... Um, he was he, he was able to do some level of work in a, at least a dozen more. Some people say as many as twenty more. But uh, once you get a um, a person that skilled and someone who is that adept at language, things tend to come. Patterns seem to make sense. Uh, but the the reliable number that uh, he he referred to over and over again was sixteen. What do you think Hugh Nibley would think of Book of Mormon studies today? Well, Hugh would be disappointed at some of the uh, routes that contemporary academics have taken us. The notion that we have to be politically correct on college campuses today, the fact that diversity, equity, and inclusion are the highest and, and uh, greatest values that academic institutions value above all else. The fact that we're going back and trying to rewrite history to be uh, socially just, to, to be politically correct, Hugh would not appreciate that in the least. In fact, he'd have apocalyptic things to say about uh, such things as toppling statues and, and uh, uh, renaming uh, buildings and so forth. On the other hand, as I've tried to share in the presentation... I believe Hugh would be thrilled and delighted at the ways that Book of Mormon scholarship and uh, Program Prize scholarship and gospel scholarship in general is now being democratized and being made available all over the world. I'll give you one little uh, quick example. We had a report come in from one of the mission presidents in Argentina 
the most uh, uh, powerful Come Follow Me presentation in English is uh, Tyler Griffin and, and uh, Taylor Halverson on the Book of Mormon Central YouTube channel. But the most uh, powerful presentation in Spanish is Pepe Valle on the Book of Mormon Central Spanish YouTube channel. And this mission president in Argentina said, during the pandemic, since we couldn't have people come to church, and yet they had to go to church before they get baptized, so we said, okay, you guys watch 10 weeks of Pepe Valle on YouTube, and that'll count for having to go to, going to church. <laughs> so we were thrilled. We sort of chalked that one up to, okay, uh, we're, we're doing some good in the world. Uh, this sort of, of a global democratization, I think Hugh would be thrilled with. I'll give you one other, other example. Th this also came back from uh, Argentina. There is a little branch down there uh, in the town of Tucumán, in the mountains of Argentina, and a fellow came back from there and said, you know what? The Spanish version of Scripture Plus is the way they do priesthood meeting. It's the way they do Relief Society. It's the way they are doing gospel doctrine in this little branch. That, I think, would thrill Hugh. So I have one more question for you, which is, Hugh Nibley, you know, he, he was a while ago. So why should Latter-day Saints today study Hugh Nibley, and how outdated is his work? Uh, Hugh Nibley was a prophet. The words of prophets age gracefully compared to most other corpora of uh, uh, texts. Much of Hugh's uh, work is very much in his uh, setting. It's coming out of the Depression. It's coming out of World War II. It's coming out of uh, the 50s and so forth. But then the Book of Mormon is coming out of Mesoamerica in the pre-classic times. And in some cases, we can go to Captain Ronai and say, this is 75 B.C., and we know some of the things that are happening on the ground in, in this part of the world in 75 B.C. So... As long as settings is uh, taken into account, I believe Hugh Nibley's words will, uh, will last uh, forever. I mean, there are some things that just do not go out of style. Uh, prophets have been calling us to repentance forever. And he was a particularly adept caller to repentance. Thank you so much for your time and your efforts. I do have one more thing for the audience. I'm going to do something I wasn't planning on. But all those who studied under Hugh Nibley or took a class from Hugh Nibley or anything in the, in, the, in the audience, could you please stand up if you've taken any classes or anything from Hugh Nibley? Okay, let me... So that, that's our crowd there. So let me, let me add one other thing. Anyone who's read one of Hugh Nibley's works, please... please. <laughs> so he's had an impact. So with that, thank you very much, Kirk. Let me mention a couple things for our audience, but thank yous. Thank you. I have a, a gift for you, but I...